For our scripture reading this morning, we are in the book of Isaiah, chapter 8. We're going to be reading Isaiah 8, 11 through 9, 7. Again, Isaiah 8, starting in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you should honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portions in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and will turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for those for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. So when the Gulf War began in 1991 between the United States and Iraq, I was living in Africa. I was a missionary at that time in Kenya on the east coast of Africa. And so one day I went into the capital, Nairobi, to pick up some supplies. And while I walked along the street, suddenly I noticed that there were rocks flying in my direction. A woman across the street was throwing rocks at me. 
Now, this was no little street. This was a very broad street, and so this woman had a very good arm. And her rocks were getting closer and closer to me. And so, smart man that I am, I decided it was time for me to walk faster, to get away from all of those flying rocks. Apparently, this woman did not like Americans, nor did she like this war. And she guessed correctly that I am an American. How did she know that I am an American? Well, I look different from most Africans. My skin is light, African skin is dark. And so this woman decided to throw rocks at me because I was distinct. Fortunately for me, her rocks missed me. Last week, we learned in Isaiah chapter 6 that God is holy. The word holy means separated. God is separate from all that he has made, mainly in his moral purity. If we want to get close then to the holy God, we too must be holy. We must be distinct. We must stand out in this world. In Isaiah chapter 6, God took Isaiah's guilt away by means of a coal from the altar of sacrifice. Since Isaiah served the holy God, he needed to be holy also. And so God made Isaiah holy, and God makes us as Christians today holy by means of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The life of faith that we Christians live is distinct from the lives of the people around us. We live differently than the people of the world. That doesn't mean that we act weird. It means that we act holy. We live differently. And so let's look today at some ways that we Christians act distinctly from Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. First of all, as a Christian of faith, you live with a distinct trust. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please pull it out and turn back to Isaiah chapter 7 so we can get some of the context of what we have read this morning. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 2, King Ahaz of Judah gets some very bad news. We read in chapter 7 and verse 2 that the house of David, or King Ahaz's house, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. The two nations of Syria, as well as Ephraim, which was also known as the northern kingdom of Israel, decided that they would begin a war with Judah and with King Ahaz. Why? Because Judah and Ahaz would not join with Syria and Israel to fight against the emerging empire of the mighty Assyrians. Now, I brought a map with me today to show you why Syria and Israel felt the need to do something quickly about these nasty Assyrians, okay? So, uh, 
the Assyrians are actually in modern-day Iraq, okay? So they would be on the northeast of this map, off to the northeast, and they would be coming down for all the nations in front of them. They would be like Pac-Man, and so they would gobble up all the nations in front of them. The first nation in front of them was, you can see Damascus there in the top right. That would be Syria. They would come through Damascus, and then as they made their way down, they would come to Samaria, Israel, the northern kingdom, and then finally they would reach Judah, Jerusalem, there in the south. So that was the direction Iraq was coming from, and so everybody was afraid of Assyria, this mighty people. And so they, the two nations who are closest to Assyria, the nations of Syria and Israel, were the most afraid, and they said, hey, Judah, join with us to fight against the Assyrians. And Judah said, nope, we're not going to do it. And so how did Ahaz feel when he heard about these two countries wanting to go to a fight with him? We see in verse 2 that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so the king and the people in Judah are so scared that they're shaking. They can't stay still because they are afraid of what is coming for them. Now, does God know that Ahaz is afraid? Is he aware of this? Yes, he is. And so God then sends his prophet Isaiah to go to the king. And he tells the king in verse 11 to ask a sign of the Lord your God. God says to Ahaz, look, I I want to strengthen your faith in this scary time. Ask me for anything that you want. Ask me for even something great, and I will give it to you to strengthen your faith. But what does Ahaz do in response to God's generous offer? God's, or Ahaz rather, says to God, thanks, but no thanks. You can keep your sign. Huh? Why didn't Ahaz want a sign from God? If he was so scared, why didn't he want God to strengthen his faith? Because Ahaz had already made up his mind where he would find help against his enemies. He would not trust God for help. Ahaz would instead trust Assyria for help. He would make an alliance with the superpower of Assyria in order to help him to defeat the two nations of Israel and uh, Syria. And so Ahaz was thinking to himself, look, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's join Assyria so that we can be saved. Now, how does God respond to Ahaz's lack of trust? He will give to Ahaz a sign that he is not looking for, according to verse 14. The sign is, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a wonderful sign that we usually talk about at Christmas. It's a great sign, isn't it? God would send a child into the world, his own son, who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. This promise, of course, is about Jesus, our Savior, the one who would be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
It's interesting, though, that this wonderful sign and this great promise of Jesus was actually a word of judgment to King Ahaz. You see, Ahaz, he was a descendant of King David. And God had promised King David that someone from his family line would always be on the throne of Israel. And so it looks then that God kind of needs Ahaz to stay in power to keep being king. God can't let Ahaz lose and his country be conquered or else the promise to David would be wiped out. But here is what God is saying to Ahaz through this promise of a child of a virgin. God says, I can bring your godless reign to an end at any time, Ahaz. And I can start all over again with my promises to David, even through a virgin. King Ahaz does not trust God. He thinks that he can do without God. But it is actually God who can do without Ahaz. When we get then to our passage today in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 11, we read God warning the prophet Isaiah not to walk in the way of this people. Don't be afraid, God says, like King Ahaz is afraid. Be distinct. Be different. Trust God. God goes on to say in verse 12, Do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. And in verse 13, God says, let God be your fear and let him be your dread. All of these words about fear from God remind me of what President Franklin Roosevelt said in his first inaugural address during the scary time for our nation of the Great Depression. Do you remember what President Roosevelt said? The only thing we have to fear is what? Fear itself. Okay? Isaiah, however, he slightly changes the wording of what President Roosevelt said. And he said, the only thing we have to fear is God himself. If you fear God, you don't have to fear anyone or anything else. And if you fear God, like Isaiah feared God, all of your other fears inside you will be driven out of you. So church, let me ask you today, what are you afraid of? We all have fears. Maybe you're afraid today of people who say mean things to you. Maybe you're afraid about money. Maybe you're afraid about what's happening to your health. Maybe you're afraid of what's going on in your family. Maybe you're afraid of failure. Everybody is afraid of something. So if we all have fears, what makes Christians distinct in this world? What makes us different is that Christians live with an unanxious peace in this world because we fear God above everything else. We know that the mighty God is in control of this world and he is also in control of 
every single one of our circumstances. We choose then not to live angry and afraid like most of the people around us. We know that the mighty God is in control. And so we are distinct. We choose to live with trust in God. And Isaiah gives to us a good picture of what trust in God looks like in Isaiah 8 and verse 17. Isaiah says there, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Trusting in God means trusting when it seems that there will be no evidence whatsoever that God will come through for you. King Ahaz certainly saw no evidence that God was going to save him or save his nation. And so Ahaz chose not to trust God. But two words sing up, uh, uh, rather they seize up what is how we are to act as Christians. They show us what we are to do. We are to instead first wait upon God, according to Isaiah 8.17. We patiently wait for God to keep his promise to us. We don't give up on God. We wait. God will come through. And second, we are a people of hope. While we wait, we have confidence that all of our waiting on God will be rewarded. It will all be worth it in the end. So let's look then at the difference between Ahaz and Isaiah. What did King Ahaz think was his greatest threat at this time? He thought his greatest threat was war. He was afraid of war with Syria and Israel and even potentially a war with the Assyrians. And so Ahaz feared war and these nations. But who did Isaiah fear? Who did Isaiah think was his biggest threat? Isaiah believed that our ultimate threat is God himself. God's holiness and his justice were responsible for the threat of war on both sinful Ahaz and the sinful people of Judah. God was judging his people's sin at this time. But war was not the real threat that Ahaz and Judah were facing. It was God's holiness that threatened both Ahaz and Judah. And so Isaiah reminded the people in verse 13, But the Lord of hosts, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. God will either be a safe place of sanctuary for you where you can be safe, or according to verse 14, he will be a rock of stumbling that you stumble over and fall to your doom. The day is coming for each one of us when we will all face God. That is your real problem, not war or some other catastrophe. Be different then as a Christian. Put your trust in God to save you, 
Don't trust in anyone or anything else. As a Christian of faith, you live with a distinct trust. You also live with a distinct guide. During this time of fear and security for Judah, who were the people of Judah looking to for guidance for their lives? We find the answer in verse 19 of chapter 8. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? People in this frightening time in the nation's history were desperate for guidance. They wanted reassurance about their future. And so they they went to mediums who supposedly could communicate with the dead. And when they talked with the mediums, the dead would talk in low voices that sounded a whole lot like mumbling and muttering and murmuring under your breath. And they sounded like a whole lot of chirping going on. Their message did not sound very clear to the people who went to the mediums. But there was one person who the people of Judah could go to, who would give to them a very clear word. And who was that person? God. And so God speaks very clearly through his prophets and through his word. And so God asks the obvious question in verse 20, should not a people inquire of their God? But the people of Judah did not like the message that God kept sending them. For what was God's message through Isaiah all the time? It was a message of judgment and of warning. And so the people of Judah said, "Ah, I don't like that message. So I'm going to go to someone else for a different message. Let me go to the mediums. If I give the mediums enough money... They will give to me a message of prosperity and success and safety. They have a better message for me. Now, talking to a medium might sound crazy to you, but a lot of people actually still do it today. Most of you, of course, know that the Pope lives in Rome, in Italy. So there must be a lot of Roman Catholic priests in Italy, right? And there certainly are. But do you know what Italy has more of than priests? Italy has more mediums than they do priests. There are more mediums today talking to the dead in Italy than there are priests praying to God in Italy. Why? Because people are hungry for guidance. They are afraid And so they say, I have to seek guidance from some source. But God asks a good question of people in verse 19. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Our biggest threat as human beings, as we have said, is our holy God. Our holy God can judge us with death. And dead people, of course, have already lost the battle with death. By definition, then, dead people are not the people you want to seek guidance from about how to make it through life. 
That makes no sense. Who should you want guidance from? You should seek guidance from someone who came back from the dead. From someone who has beaten death. That person, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the one and only who has beaten death on our behalf. And he gives to you that guidance that you need and that you seek in the Bible, in his word. That is why Isaiah tells people in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. Go to the Bible, Isaiah says, when you need clear guidance. Don't go to mediums. Don't listen to them mumble and murmur. And I would also say to all of you today, don't go to celebrities for guidance today for your life. Don't go to Taylor Swift or Tom Brady or Brad Pitt or Tony Robbins for guidance about your life. Yes, admire their talents, their abilities. But do you really want to listen to people who are unable to remain faithful to their spouses? Wouldn't it be better to listen to the God who is faithful always to his people and who is always faithful to his promises? The Bible is the only safe guide for us. We Christians are different because our only safe source of guidance for our lives is found here in the Bible. When the Bible is your guide for life, you have light spreading across your path. Verse 20 says, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. When you disagree with the Bible, you have no light for your life. You are living in darkness. And in your darkness, you will speak angry words against God and your king, it says in verse 21. And so the people of Judah were going to blame everyone else, even God, for their problems. But they will not take responsibility for their own sin which is indeed the source of their problems. So what is left for those who seek after guidance apart from God? Verse 22 says, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. But when you look for guidance in the Bible, what do you find? You find light. You find that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us in a scary world. God is with you. As a Christian of faith, you live with a distinct guidance. And finally, as a Christian of faith, you, you live with a distinct Savior. One who is both God and man. In Isaiah chapter 9, we learn more about the Emmanuel who was to be born of a virgin, according to Isaiah 7 and verse 14. When this child was to be born, verse 1 of chapter 9 says, there will be no more gloom, no more darkness. The darkness would all be gone. The child would bring light. And where would this light 
make its first appearance, according to Isaiah 9. The land of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's interesting to me that Isaiah would make this prophecy about a child of light coming to Zebulun and Naphtali at this time of Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, we had reached about 732 B.C. And what was happening to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali at this time? The two most northern tribes of Israel. Let's look at our map again to see what was going on at this moment. The way of the sea is off to the left, as you can see, just west of Israel, next to the Mediterranean Sea. And as you can see by the lines going across, the way of the sea, Naphtali, and Zebulun, they were already Assyrian provinces by the time of 732 BC. They had already been conquered by Assyria. Assyria, like Pac-Man, had swallowed them up. And so they were already under the occupation of the Assyrians. What a dark moment in Israel's history. And so, the people of Israel were already living in darkness. But what was the promise that Isaiah made in this dark time? When people sought a word from God in this very dark time, what did Isaiah say to bring them hope? He said, light is coming. Light is coming for you specifically, tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we see this promise fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So let's read the promise together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. This child who was born of a virgin would grow up in Galilee, the place of darkness that is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. Matthew then gets more specific about where Jesus lived as an adult in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13. Let's read together. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So where did Jesus go? Where did he bring his light? To the very places, Zebulun and Naphtali, that were the first places invaded by Assyria. The people of Zebulun and Naphtali, they needed a savior. And God promised them a savior in the form of this child. That savior, Jesus, would bring a lot of blessing. If you look at chapter 9, you see one blessing after another that would come through Jesus. In verse 2, Jesus would bring light. In verse 3, Jesus would bring joy. In verse 4, Jesus would bring freedom. And then in verse 5, Jesus would bring an end to war. Does light, joy, 
freedom, and an end to war sound good to you? It sounds real good to me. All of these good gifts, they come with the child, Jesus Christ. So what is unique about our Christian Savior? What is distinct about him? Jesus is both God and human at the same time in one person. We as people need a Savior who is both God and man in order to save us from God's judgment. Verse 6 opens with the humanness of Jesus. We read, therefore, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Jesus is like any other human being. He comes as a child. So when God looked down at the mess that we human beings were in, he did not shake his head and say to himself, humans, why did I create them? It's not what God did. No, God sent a savior to us to get us out of our mess. God himself came to be with us. He sent Jesus. Now, we are used to human saviors in this world, but the savior that Isaiah promised is not only human, he is also God. In each combination of words in verse 6, we see that Jesus is not just a man. He is also God. We read first that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Literally, he is a wonder of a counselor. God is the one who works wonders. God is the one who does miracles like he did in Egypt when he sent the plagues to free his people from captivity and slavery in Egypt. It's God who does wonders. And yet it is human beings who are counselors, who guide us. And so Jesus would come as the wonder of a counselor, the one who knew God's plan and the one who was God. And so Jesus would come as a wonder of a counselor. Jesus also would be the mighty God. Yes, Jesus came as a baby, but it would not be as a cute little baby that Jesus would save his people. Jesus would be and still is a human warrior who will save us. When Jesus returns at the end of time, he's coming with a sword in his mouth. He will defeat his enemies as the mighty God. God is with us then to save us. And Jesus will also save us as everlasting father. This child would not just be human. This child would be everlasting, eternal. Only God is eternal. Jesus then would be God. He would also be a father to us in the sense that he would have compassion on us in our trials and difficulties like a father has compassion on his children. And then finally, Jesus is Prince of Peace. God will defeat his enemies and bring peace. And he will only need one person to win this victory. Jesus. In verse 4 of Isaiah 9, we are reminded of how God won a battle for Israel through uh, his servant Gideon. 
He defeated the Midianites one day. Interestingly, Midian was in this very same territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, where Jesus would live. Gideon won a battle against thousands of Midianite soldiers with only 300 soldiers of his own. What an incredible miracle God did that day. And now, God is going to do an even greater miracle. One soldier, one prince, one king will defeat all of Israel's enemies. Yes, this prince will be human, who will bring peace, but it is only because this prince has the power of Almighty God that peace will come and victory will come. And when Jesus has won this peace, we see in verse 7 that there will be no end to the peace that he has won. His kingdom will be one of justice and of righteousness from this time forth and forever. I can hardly wait until the Prince of Peace comes. Can you? What a great day that will be when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom and we as his people live with him for eternity. When Jesus, God with us, and a human being comes, he will bring us into his kingdom of eternal peace and joy. We Christians are distinct. We are holy. We live differently from the world around us. The Bible is our guide for life. Jesus, both God and human in one person, is the Savior that we trust. Our world is full of threats. There is darkness in this world. But we Christians, we are at peace. Why? Because we trust that Jesus can save us from our greatest threat, the threat of God's holiness and judgment. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has brought peace between us and God through his death on the cross for our sins. Be distinct then in this world. Don't be afraid. Put your trust in Jesus so that you can live lives of joy and peace. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you have come to this earth for us. We thank you that you have become God with us. We are grateful for your presence in our lives, and we are grateful that you have come to save us. I pray for your people today that we as your people would live distinctly in this world. May we live with an unanxious peace. May we live waiting upon you, trusting that you will keep all of your promises. In your great name we pray, amen.